Today on a special class of COVID-19 Sunshine Economy, has the pandemic chipped away local control of public education? We keep playing this game about local control. It's not their money. It's our money. It's the people's money. I'm Tom Hudson. I'm Jessica Bakeman. The state government pushed local districts to reopen classrooms last fall sooner than elected school board members thought was safe. The tug of war over who gets to control public schools in Florida. All the time, always preempting home rule. So if I would say to you that there's been a dramatic shift in the state's intervention, uh, I would say uh, absolutely not. Next on a special class of COVID-19 Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. An eight-page document in July set in motion a series of decisions still affecting millions of Florida public school students, their families, and teachers. The document was born out of the pandemic, but illustrates a battle between the state and local governments that goes back decades. Who should be in charge of public education? This document was an executive order issued by Florida's Education Commissioner, Richard Corcoran. It required local school boards to reopen public school buildings for all students five days a week. Whether kids would take classes in person would still be up to parents, not school district leaders. This is how Corcoran explained it a few days later at a state board of education meeting. It gives complete flexibility complete stability, financial stability, and complete accountability. And part of that flexibility is if a parent would like to have their child in a bricks-and-mortar classroom with a teacher in front of them five days a week, they absolutely should have that option, and it will not come out of the emergency order. The order promised to keep state funding steady, even if there was a drop in enrollment, and it required school districts to submit their plan to reopen to the Department of Education. The order became a lightning rod. Some saw it as the state standing up for parent choice, while others interpreted it as the state undermining local decision making. Today on a special Sunshine Economy, we're going to explore that balance of responsibility for public education between local decision makers and state regulators and how it has been affected by the pandemic. This program is part of our reporting project, Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students. To find all of that reporting and to sign up for our newsletter, visit classofcovid.org. Florida was the first state to tell local school districts they had to reopen schools last fall, and it remains only one of five states that require in-class teaching be available to some or all students. Most states do not have any state mandate regarding reopening of schools as the COVID-19 pandemic stretches into its second year. I looked up the word extortion. That was Broward County School Board member Patricia Good in October. I wanted to make sure that I understood the definition. And the definition is the practice of obtaining something through force of threats. This is extortion by the Department of Education. There's no two ways about it. 
Months earlier over the summer, the Broward School Board had submitted a plan saying schools would open October 16th, and the State Department of Education approved it. But now Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran was going back on that. He wrote a letter telling the district that schools had to open October 5th. This Broward School Board meeting was four days before that deadline. This is Board Member Good again. We have followed our reopening plan to a T. They approved it. Board members described the State Department of Education's action as extortion and also, quote, heartless, ungodly, and even discriminatory, since the Broward Board is made up of all women. Board members openly debated suing over what they argued was the state infringing on their power as local elected officials. Do we still have the ability to challenge the state legally regarding their overstepping their constitutional authority? The authority of local-level decision-makers, elected officials. This seems to be the new endangered species in the state of Florida. Because if they did it with this, they're going to do it with something else. Absolutely. They have taken away our local control. We keep playing this game about local control. It's not their money. It's the people's money. Besides good, that was also board members Nora Rupert, Donna Korn, and Rosalind Osgood. Osgood was vice chair at the time. Thank God I said my prayers this morning. I might be using some other words right now. Absolutely not. No, 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 and no. Ultimately, though, yes, school buildings reopened. The board compromised with the state, planning a phased reopening that brought students back starting October 9th. But that lawsuit never happened. In Miami Day, the situation was a bit different. This was the school board meeting on September 29th. So with all due respect, this is not about local control. Miami-Dade County School Board Vice Chair Steve Gallen III argued the board did have the power to keep classrooms closed, but acknowledged the state also had the power to dock the district's funding. We have the ability to take this plan and rip it up. Gallen ripped the reopening plan from Superintendent Alberto Carvalho, who had submitted it to the state without first getting the school board's sign-off. Carvalho committed the district to reopen October 5th as long as COVID-19 conditions improved. However, ripping up that plan has consequences. $54 million worth of consequences, up to $84 million, according to our CFO. That's how much money the Miami-Dade district stood to lose if the State Department of Education made good on its threat. The state had been funding districts based on their enrollment before COVID-19 led many families to leave public schools. But if Miami-Dade did not reopen school buildings, the district would revert to being funded by actual enrollment, and Miami-Dade had lost thousands of students. The school board decided the cost of going against the State Department of Education was too high, and the district reopened school buildings on the state's timeline. It was a less contentious debate in Palm Beach County. Schools there have been open since late September. But schools in the Keys are still dealing with this issue. The Monroe County District started a hybrid schedule for some students in late August. Based on that plan, 6th through 12th grade students have the option to go to school on only some days, while learning online the other days. And on Friday, State Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran sent a letter to the Keys saying that wouldn't be allowed anymore. The district now expects to offer five-day-a-week in-person classes sometime this month.
This draining of authority from local school districts has been happening for years through changes in how schools are paid for, policies that boosted private alternatives to public education, and laws that let the state get more involved in the day-to-day operations of schools. In this hour, we're exploring whether COVID-19 has accelerated this shift. So, still to come, going from the classroom to a local public school board to the state legislature. Having been in the classroom, having been an assistant principal in charge of a school, Uh, Having been on the school board, I recognize what state laws translate to when they get down to that level. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. We're back with this special class of COVID-19 Sunshine Economy. This is the first legislative session that Robin Bartleman has had a desk on the floor of the Florida House of Representatives. She's visited Tallahassee before during other lawmaking sessions, but this time she can cast votes on bills. Bartleman is a Democrat representing Pembroke Pines, Southwest Ranches, and Weston. She was elected last November after serving 16 years on the Broward County School Board. She was on the board when it voted to reopen Broward schools earlier than first planned last fall after the state threatened funding cuts. She also has worked as a special education teacher and an assistant principal. I spoke with Bartleman about bringing that experience to the state legislature as it considers several responses to the pandemic's effects on public education. Having been in the classroom, having been an assistant principal in charge of a school, uh, having been on the school board, I recognize what state laws translate to when they get down to that level and how it can actually hurt teachers and hurt students. When you were a local school board member, did you feel as if your decisions were limited by state policies or state requirements? All the time, always preempting home rule, the funding a lot of times. We had a meeting the other day about pre-K-12 appropriation subcommittee. We were talking about categorical funding. Well, we do get categorical funding, which is for specific areas like transportation. But what we didn't talk about was how you have to use general revenue and move it around because the categorical funding isn't always enough. There are always issues with funding and how we're using it. When the state threatened Broward, uh, the Broward School District, that it would lose funding if the district didn't open schools sooner than the school board wanted to, you were on the school board at that time, that was a plan that had already been approved by the state. And then the state was saying, sorry, we changed our minds. You have to go back to school sooner than you plan. And at that time, the board had an open discussion about suing over that, but that didn't happen. Do you think that it should have? We came to a compromise position where it was just a couple of days difference. So I think that the position we came to was the best one for our teachers and students. Do you think COVID-19 has contributed to the loss of local control over public education in Florida? I think to some extent where they told us you have to open up, you're going to have to open up now. Um, They're forcing the FSA and all of the testing on us, but we've never had that control. But as it pertains to opening of schools, that's the biggest issue with COVID-19. And because of years of the legislature deciding to roll back property tax rates to keep local tax revenues for schools flat, the state is now contributing 53% of the base funding for public schools. Do you think that influences or shapes decisions by local school board members that now there's a bigger chunk of the money coming from the state versus from local? I think as a school board member, I was happy to get any money I had. I was like, oh, I have extra money for mental health this year. This is awesome. I think wherever you get it, you look, they send down 
funded mandates. They send down unfunded mandates. And school boards are put in terrible positions where sometimes they have to rob Peter to pay Paul for a mandate that didn't come with any dollars attached. So you just do the best with what you have. Is there a specific example you can think of of when, like you said, you had to, as a school board member, rob Peter to pay Paul to um, fund an unfunded mandate? There are always decisions like that, like something simple like uh, the Jessica Lunsford law where you have to have level two screening background checks for people who are like construction companies who come in. That's such a great idea. Everybody agrees with it. There was no funding source for that law, so you just had to make it work. School boards are faced with that decision every year. You get your budget, and you're like, what am I going to do? I know I have to do these things. Then how much do I have left over for raises? Our school district in particular has a self-insurance model for health care. And that's we've been discussing in our pre-K-12 appropriations that we've gotten the federal money, but we've lost kids. So that's been a big discussion, but the issue really is no one knew how many kids were going to show up. You're still opening every single school building. We didn't say, okay, we're only going to open up, you know, two of the elementary schools in Weston. No, we opened them all up in Weston, whatever city it is. You still had to pay all of those costs, the electricity, the health insurance of the teachers, the insurance for the structures and, and the facilities. The bills didn't change. These kids have lost a year of, of instruction. There's no way it's up to par where we were before. And so between the mental health issues we're going to have to deal with with children, those that lost parents, those who were evicted from their homes, those who didn't have food, there's a lot that's gone on in their lives. We're going to have to overcome that. So you need to address the kids' primary needs first before they can learn. And then we got to figure out where are the uh, academic losses. And then we need to uh, make sure that we're providing extra instruction time and high-quality instruction time for those kids to catch them up. Tens of thousands of students haven't shown up at public schools this year that were expected to. Many are going to charter virtual private schools or, or they might be homeschooled. How do public school districts go about trying to bring them back? We actually had a meeting with five superintendents the other day. And because we wanted to know, because we do have a group of students that are just gone, that were just like, where are they? That's the scariest group because you, you worry about their safety, what's happening to them. So what they've been doing is they send social workers out to the house, truancy officers. When the superintendents reported to us, they were like down to like, we have 10 students that we can't locate. And this group of students are doing home instruction. This group, I'm hoping when things get back to normal, they'll come back. But I think there are going to be students that are going to say, hey, I like the virtual instruction and that works for them. As a former classroom teacher, I would say the hitting curriculum that occurs in schools that students uh, learn from, all those situations they get into just naturally by interacting with peers, those are important lessons as well. Um, I'm hoping more will come back when they feel safe. But look, I have a friend who has two sons with diabetes and she's afraid to send them in. And, you know, children are your life and you have to make decisions as a parent that are best for your kids and what you think are in their best interest when it comes to their health. Republican leaders in the legislature are advancing a package that would further expand alternatives to public education, like charter schools, which are taxpayer funded but privately run, vouchers to cover private school tuition. Do you support those efforts they call school choice? I have serious issues with school vouchers. Since I've been up here, what I notice is everyone wants to spend taxpayer dollars wisely, and they want to hold people accountable and departments 
and schools and agencies accountable for how they're utilizing tax dollars. With vouchers, you get your voucher and there's no check and balance system. You could be going to a great school like Pinecrest where your voucher is kind of like a coupon for you to take a little bit off. Or you could go to a mom and pop school that doesn't even have college degree teachers. Because state statute, if you're your own private school, there is no mandate that you have teachers with a degree. Then you send these kids off and you have to hope that they're using a really great reading curriculum, that they're getting everything they need, and there's no check and balance system. You'll never know that. Although the parent will know that when the child graduates and they go to take an SAT or an ACT and their score is really low and they're like, well, what happened? My kid was making A's this whole time. People really want accountability. They really, you know, taxpayers want to know their money's going. When you just hand off a voucher and say, good luck, what happens? What happens to your money? I have a real issue with that. And also I feel it's our paramount duty to provide, and the Constitution says this as well, to provide children with a high quality education. You have no idea what those kids are getting with those vouchers. And I know they say, well, parents know. But that's not the case because we have parents who chose charter schools in Broward County that we have closed. Charter schools where IRS taxes weren't paid, where a reading curriculum wasn't used, where they weren't paying their teachers. And we work with the state to close those charter schools. But we have that provision in state statute to do that. And it's set up that they have to have degree teachers. They have to have certified teachers. We have to make sure those kids are reading because they're going to take the FSA like every other school in traditional public schools. Voucher kids don't have any of that. So you just have to ask yourself what's happening with those tax dollars. And you said we, I think you meant the legislature there has a paramount duty to make adequate provision for public education. It's in the Constitution. But also in the Constitution is that school boards are elected to have the authority over the schools in their districts. And I just wonder, lastly, you know, how do these efforts to expand school choice programs affect the authority of locally elected school boards over the schools in their districts? That's interesting because I have received calls over the years from parents who have used a voucher because they thought it was, or whether it's for students with disabilities, and they're like, wait a minute, this isn't happening at my school, that my kid isn't getting this. And I'm like, sorry, can't do anything. I'm not in charge of your voucher school. That's a private entity. One of the recent cases was a student with disabilities. Uh, they had no community-based instruction for this child. So they were basically sitting in a classroom, so they're getting federal dollars and state tax dollars. But, you know, what we try to do with students with disabilities, especially developmental disabilities, is get them out into the workforce, get them soft skills so they can get a job. Luckily, the child is in high school till they're 22, so they pulled them out, and, you know, the student has the opportunity now to work, to have job coaches. But they were just sitting in a room. They may have been instructing them, but... We can't make those things happen in a voucher program. I had a student who left me years ago when they first came out, speech therapy, occupational therapy, um, physical therapy, language therapy, huge issues, uh, developmental issues that we were working to overcome. And the student was doing well, toilet training, all of those things for a seven-year-old. Went to a voucher school, took the voucher, and didn't get any of those services, came back to us so far behind. If you're using taxpayer dollars because we are committed to ensuring that we, we're educating our children and we're going to have a high-quality workforce, you have no guarantee that that's happening when you just blanketly give something without any accountability. 
That was Florida House Democrat Robin Bartleman from Broward County. We invited several Republican lawmakers for an interview. They either declined or didn't respond. Still to come, the current chairwoman of the Broward County School Board on local control of public schools. I just don't feel like our community as a whole prioritize education. Right now, education is in a crisis. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening this week. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. For this special Class of COVID-19 episode of the Sunshine Economy, we're talking about the tug of war over who gets to control public schools in Florida. For the whole series and to sign up for our newsletter, visit classofcovid.org. Like the other school districts in South Florida, Broward schools started last school year online because of the pandemic. The state signed off on Broward's original strategy of bringing students back into their classrooms after the first quarter of the year. That's mid-October. But two weeks before, Florida Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran threatened funding if classrooms weren't reopened by the first Monday in October. Broward pushed up its return date by a week, but school board members were infuriated about it. They considered suing the state. Rosalind Osgood initially supported suing. She was first elected to the Broward County School Board in 2012, and she's been chair since November. In hindsight, I don't think it would have made any difference. And when we look at where the kids are and how they're struggling, it's a really, really tough place to be because as we try to navigate a deadly pandemic and do education online, uh, we've learned over the last several months that many of our kids are suffering even greater attrition. They're falling further and further behind, even some of our honor students. So it seems that you think, uh, in hindsight, it was the right decision to open schools at that time. At that particular time, I was not for opening schools. But as we sit today, we are where we are. I wouldn't say that it was the right decision to open schools. But I will say that we're at a place now where we have to do everything we can to catch our students up and get them back into some type of learning environment that's going to help them be successful. Chairwoman, we are where we are now in part because of that decision. Do you believe that that decision was solely the Broward County School Board's decision to make? It was not solely our decision. You see, what oftentimes happened to school districts is we get directives and unfunded mandates from Tallahassee. For example, if we're going to have an executive order that says we need to open schools face-to-face, we also need to simultaneously have an executive order that says that all persons that work in the school system would be able to receive the COVID-19 vaccination. We need the additional monies that we will need to provide additional wraparound services for our kids because as they come back to school now, we're dealing with more social emotional learning problems, just the fallout from the devastation that the pandemic has done on our children. Many of them have lost loved ones during this time of COVID-19. So there's a level of grief counseling that's needed. And I could just go on and on about the needs. When you have children in schools today, 
It's not just helping them to achieve academically. You literally are working and fighting every day to help them be good citizens and good students, to provide them with life skills that's going to allow them to be successful as they're navigating times of so much uncertainty and pain and hurt that they find themselves dealing with today. Chairwoman, would you call that executive order that came from the Commissioner of Education in Florida to reopen classrooms an unfunded mandate? I would call it an unfunded mandate. It wasn't focused, in my opinion, on the wholeness of the child or dealing with the pandemic situation from a child's perspective in a holistic way. Chairwoman, do you think COVID-19 has accelerated the tug of war of control between local school boards and the state government regarding public education? I think that it has more exposed it. I think that more people are paying attention to it now. When you look at the last eight or nine years and how the state has continued to take millage away from school boards and fund them at less and less dollars, we continue to see the power being taken away from the school board because if you don't have money, sufficient amount of funds to adequately fund education, then it weakens your capacity to deliver quality education for the students. Let me ask about the financial piece of this. You mentioned millage, which is the property tax rate. Local property taxes are a significant source of funding for local public schools. State funding is also a significant part. In fact, in the base per student funding formula, about 53 cents of every dollar comes from state revenue and 47 cents comes from local revenue. You mentioned how in years past, the state legislature has limited the ability of local school boards to keep the millage rate at a level and capture the increase in property values as it relates to higher property taxes. Instead, the state government, state legislatures over the past number of years have required uh, local school districts to drop that millage so that that increase in property value does not result in higher property taxes for local property owners into local school boards. However, this legislative session, that appears to be off the table, that in fact, that locally required effort is likely going to be allowed to increase, though. If it increases, it still never takes us back to a place where we are held harmless. And that's the thing. There's never a period where you are caught up and then the increase takes place on top of that. It's like when we talk about whether things should be equal or whether you provide equity. And if we think about communities, we know that some communities have a larger tax base than other communities. So when we look at the state's budget and we look at education in that budget, if we prioritize education in our state budgets and then fund other things, I think it would ultimately get us where we need to be. A lot of times what we do is we fund other things first, and then we kind of put education in there at some level, but not having an adequate funding. For example, in school districts now, you have to provide mental health services. You have to provide food beyond lunch and breakfast. You have to provide clothing sometimes, shoes. There's just a whole bunch of wraparound services that go with 
operating schools in today's world. The state constitution gives school boards the authority to govern the schools in their districts, but the state controls the money. And I'm wondering in that context, do you think the state really holds the power? I do think the state holds the power in, you know, I have a non-traditional thought about the whole thing where I feel that the state itself is actually in violation of the Constitution because although I'm not an attorney, I do believe that the Constitution is very clear about the state adequately funding school districts. And I think that we could make a good argument and use empirical data from the last 10 or 12 years and show that the state is not adequately funding school districts. So let me ask you this, where do we go from here? I just don't feel like our community as a whole prioritize education. Right now, education is in a crisis. COVID-19 pandemic has caused even more devastation. We have many kids that were able to thrive during COVID. We have many kids that struggled and we have thousands and thousands of students that are still struggling, but nobody is really sounding the alarm about it. It's kind of like the education of our kids is just kind of being left totally to school districts. And we know that that's not the way that our communities used to do it. When we were growing up in our schools, education and our education was the priority of the entire community. And I think that we're gonna have to begin to have an all hands on deck approach. Our children need us today more than ever before. That was Rosalind Osgood. She chairs the Broward County School Board. We'll hear more from her a little later on two public education proposals making their way through the state legislature. This is a special class of COVID-19 Sunshine Economy. Still to come, the school board vice chairman of the largest school district in the state. So if I would say to you that there's been a dramatic shift in the state's intervention, I would say uh, absolutely not. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. This special edition of the Sunshine Economy is part of our Class of COVID-19 reporting project. It was a messy start to the school year for the state's largest district. The online learning software Miami-Dade County Public Schools was using failed spectacularly. And the district's online portal was repeatedly disrupted by cyber attacks. And then came the pressure from the state to reopen classrooms earlier than school board members believed was safe. The Miami-Dade School Board voted to begin a phased reopening in mid-October, but State Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran argued that timeline was not consistent with the district's plan that had been approved by the state. The board eventually agreed to start opening classrooms October 5th. The Miami-Dade County Public School District is the broadcast license holder of WLRN, but the school district has no editorial control. We spoke with Steve Gallen, vice chairman of the Miami-Dade County School Board. I think the district and the school board had the authority and the latitude to make a determination as related to when we were going to open. Uh, but obviously, the uh, flexible funding factor and the adverse impact that it would have had on our school district, our teachers, and most importantly, our students, uh, weighed heavily in our decision. Vice chair, with that flexible funding question, was it truly still an open decision, a free decision by the school board, 
win to reopen schools and welcome children and teachers back into the classroom, given if you had gone forward with the original schedule, tens of millions of dollars of state funding was at risk? You're correct. So my answer is, yes, it was a uh, decision that the school board had and maintained, uh, but obviously a a decision that had some significant uh, fiscal impacts on the overall operation of the school district. Uh, So was it a potential uh, carrot and stick scenario? Absolutely. But as relates to uh, the board having its authority uh, removed in terms of making that decision, uh, that was not the case. If the Constitution says school boards have the authority over schools, but the state controls the money, doesn't the state really have the power? Well, under those particular circumstances and tied to the executive order, which provided for the flexible funding, uh, they did have the authority. But what I was adamant, and, and listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a strong advocate and strong fighter, and I think my record uh, stands on its own relative to issues of, of, of board uh, authority and board independence. Uh, but I'm very transparent and candid about the reality of what we were dealing with, and that was the issue of flexible funding that was reflected in the executive order. Uh, having uh, ripped up that reopening plan, having discarded the commitment that was uh, made to open up under certain conditions by the superintendent to the state, which was tied to the flexible uh, uh, funding uh, provision, uh, the district could have discarded all of it and moved forward. But obviously, the implications had everything to do everything to do with the impact that it would have had on uh, the fiscal standing of the school district. That does not uh, indicate that the district's authority was taken away, but the district was put in a box relative to a decision that had fiscal implications. Looking back on that now, is there any part of you that wishes the board had said no and and really ripped that up, not just figuratively, but literally ripped it up and said, sorry, we're going to do what we want to do? No, I think uh, all things being as they are with respect to how we reopen, uh, albeit some of the challenges and weighing the adverse impact that losing the tens of millions of dollars would have had not only on our school district this year, but as we forecast very uh, challenging fiscal scenarios in the future, I think we got it right. I don't think it was an either or proposition. I think it was a both and. I think we could have embraced uh, some of the tenants that were outlined in the executive order embrace the receipt of the flexible funding, but at the same time making every commitment to appropriately and safely open up our schools. Uh, Vice Chair, in his State of the State address, Governor Ron DeSantis said, Florida schools are open and we are one of only a handful of states in which every parent has the right to send their child to school in person. All- in hindsight, was that the right decision? And yes, yes, that that was the right decision. Um, those of you who know me professionally, I'm an educator. Yes, I'm the school board member, I'm the vice chair, but I'm an educator and I have to lean into what the research says relative to the best uh, scenario and the best environment for children to learn. Uh, it's in person. It is in person. Uh, I think we had to, as uh, states across this nation and quite frankly across the world, uh, balance the merits of good educational delivering, delivery modalities with health, wellness, and safety. So I think it's a balance. And I think uh, notwithstanding the governor's comments, because I'm not really embracing it from what he had to say, I'm embracing the reality from what I know and I experience and what I ultimately believe 
is that children are best served, especially children from fragile, underserved communities uh, in school, in person. And the parents who uh, express concern about them being essential workers, them having to work, children being left at home, children struggling, struggling academically through uh, virtual learning. I think we had to strike that balance and parents at the end of the day should have the right to choose what they believe is in the best interest of their children. And I think that decision provided that parent, those parents with that choice option. Uh, let's face it, I'm not standing uh, in a position of hypocrisy. My daughter uh, is on virtual school. I, as a parent uh, and her mother, we make that choice. But again, it's based on our individual circumstances, notwithstanding other parents who may not have that latitude, that flexibility, or that capacity to effectively uh, educate and support their children's education at home. So again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. So notwithstanding what the governor had to say, I don't want to lean into his words uh, for, for different reasons, but theoretically and from a practical standpoint, I believe that parents uh, should have that choice. So you say it, it was the right decision, and obviously we know a lot more about the impacts of that decision now than we did at the time when there were more question marks about you know, how safe it would be to open schools. But what about the process? Was it the right process to make that decision, given that you know it was the state coming in and mandating that? It wasn't a decision that local school boards were making based on the input of their communities. I don't believe his words reflected a mandate. And, and let, me, let me be very candid. I'm not here to uh, defend the governor's words. I'm not here to affirm his words. I'm here to say the reality of what he said and what the Constitution provides for uh, school board independence and, and authority uh, stood. Uh, where the governor and the commissioner of education had some level of impact was on flexible funding. So notwithstanding what he said, school districts across the state of Florida, all 67 could have exercised their constitutional authority and say, we will not open, but they would do it at the risk of the flexible funding, which is a real impact to operations and which is a real impact to the education of children. So his words for me, his words for me, and quite frankly, standing against the constitution, uh, did not bear the weight of a mandate. What did bear the weight of a decision uh, that needed to be made and thought through was the fiscal impact that school districts had to face with the loss of flexible funding. So Governor Ron DeSantis in his State of the State address also said, we will not let anybody close your schools. So that's not looking back, that's looking forward. As locally elected school board official, how do you hear that comment? The governor has to articulate uh, his message based on what he feels is is fair and appropriate. Uh, that's his his right. Uh, what I do know that at the end of the day, the Constitution and the state statute says that the local public schools are operated and supervised by local school boards. So if there's a determination that is made that a school has to be closed for the health, welfare, and safety of children, uh, that authority still stands. You may recall that we actually closed two schools, albeit for a day. I think we closed um, a mast was closed and another school was closed in our district. So when there's a, a need to actually close a school, the literal decision of closing a school still stands. And we have precedent that it was done subsequent to the reopening of the district and subsequent to us uh, submitting the reopening plan and, and maintaining our eligibility for flexible funding. So that authority was still in place and that decision, the Miami-Dade County Public Schools for safety uh, and health and welfare reasons, uh, that decision was made, notwithstanding what someone may say in a state of the state address or 
uh, some other positions that may be represented in, in words uh, versus what we have to do uh, on a week to week, month to month and year to year basis as school board members running the fourth largest district in the United States. So when the governor says we will not let anybody close your schools, the anybody close your schools, that anybody is you, that anybody is school board members and superintendents. And I just wonder if that pressure and that tension that has been there for a long time between the state and local governments has really been building during this time. Does that harm public education? Is that good for public schools? I don't feel any of the pressure. I have not served witness to our district feeling any of the pressure to making uh, sound decisions relative to what's in the interest of our schools, our, our employees, and quite frankly, our students. Through the years, the legislature has put limits on the ability of local school districts to take advantage of higher property values and collect additional property taxes, not by necessarily raising property tax rates, but rather just capturing the increase of property values through even keeping the millage rate, the tax rate even, but as the value of the underlying asset increases, the price of homes and condominiums and commercial properties goes up, you're able to see an increase in those revenues. Over many years, the state legislature, led by Republicans, have stepped in and have put a cap on that. Now, that may change this year because of the pandemic economy, but Vice Chair, how does that state mandate impact the school district? Oh, it impacts the school district dramatically. Uh, But the impact that it has on the school district is that obviously it limits uh, the available revenue streams. And in a place like Miami-Dade County, public schools in Miami-Dade, we have uh, some very strong property values. We have uh, tremendous development and growth. And this development and growth in property values provide an opportunity for us to get additional revenue uh, to fund our public schools. So it does have an impact. One of the effects of this restriction that state legislatures have put on local school districts and local governments from capturing that increase in property values has been the pendulum of financing, of funding for public schools has swung from a majority coming from local government entities to now 53% of the base funding is coming from the state government. What has that shift to a larger state proportion to public education spending met at local school districts? For a school district like, like Miami-Dade County Public Schools, I still think it, it's an issue of, of equitable funding. Uh, over a billion dollars, if you look at, has been lost to Miami-Dade County Public Schools in particular. If you go back to the uh, district cost differential where districts such as Miami-Dade County Public Schools were funded at a higher rate based on the fact and the reality that it costs more to educate children in Miami-Dade County than it does somewhere in the Panhandle. So uh, it has had an impact on Miami-Dade County public schools. And if you look at that scenario, I think it has had an adverse impact across the state. In terms of equity, I'm a strong proponent of equity. I mean, people have fought for decades about this issue of equality, but I'm a a proponent of equity. You place resources and support uh, at, at the greatest point of need. And, and, and obligation. And I think Miami-Dade kind of public schools uh, was a loser on that end. How has this pandemic, how has the COVID-19 virus changed the balance of control of public education in Florida? Control has not been changed dramatically outside of the uh, funding uh, remedies that have been provided to uh, mitigate uh, some of the revenue losses and to mitigate some of the increases in 
educational resources needed to educate children uh, through a different modality. So if I would say to you that uh, there has been a dramatic shift in the state's intervention, uh, I would say absolutely not. We embrace uh, very strongly our local authority and our control, and we will uh, never, ever, ever, ever abdicate that uh, in no shape, form, or fashion. But at the same time, we have to make the sound decisions that are not episodic, that are not emotional, and that are not predicated on um, quick decisions that can have long-term impact on the operation of our schools, uh, the sanctity of our classrooms, the compensation of our teachers, but more importantly, the education of our children. And I think we've demonstrated that as a school district and as a school board, and we plan on continuing to do that moving forward. That was Steve Gallant. He's the vice chairman of the Miami-Dade County School Board. The school board is the broadcast license holder of WLRN, but the district has no editorial control. Still to come, two ideas to limit school boards return to the state legislature. Floridians want us, expect us, to give them the opportunity to term limit their own school board members. We have legislation in Tallahassee that continues to target school boards. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. Today we are talking about state and local control over public education. Lawmakers are working now in Tallahassee on a series of proposed public education bills, two of which would change everything for school board members across Florida if voters eventually agree. Neither of the bills are new ideas. In fact, supporters have tried both of them before without success. Representative Sabatini, you're recognized to explain the bill. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is the amazing bill on school board term limits we discussed yesterday. This is House Republican Anthony Sabatini from Central Florida in February of 2020, introducing a bill to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would put term limits on local school board members. The thing we need to address the most is the question of whether we're taking the power from the voters to choose their own representatives. The truth of the matter is 82 percent of Floridians want us, expect us, to give them the opportunity to uh, term limit their own school board members. The bill passed out of the Florida House last year, but it died in the Senate. The term limit question almost appeared on the 2018 ballot as a proposed amendment to the state constitution. It was one of three issues grouped together, but the state Supreme Court ruled four to three that the ballot language was misleading. This year's legislative effort would limit an elected school board member to serving eight consecutive years. Four members each on the school boards in Broward and Palm Beach have served longer than that, plus two in Monroe County and three in Miami-Dade. Miami-Dade School Board Vice Chairman Steve Gallen is serving his second term. I think you lose sight of uh, the institutional knowledge that is critically important. School boards are one of the few elected offices in Florida not already subject to term limits. Elected sheriffs, clerks of court, county property appraisers also are not capped on how many terms they can serve if reelected. The second issue regarding local school boards would eliminate the salary of elected members. In 2018, lawmakers passed a bill that sets the salary of school board members at just below $45,000 a year. Last school year, Broward and Miami-Dade school members made that state-set salary. In Palm Beach County, it was $42,000 and about $32,000 in the Florida Keys. Any uh, effort to place some limitations either on time served 
or on compensation of school board members, I believe that it will have an adverse impact on the equitable and appropriate representation of communities. We know how those things go. That's a direct intent to cause minorities' communities to not have representation from their communities. This is Broward County School Board Chairwoman Rosalind Osgood. If you're on the school board, you get compensated whatever. In Broward County, school board members get compensated at whatever level the starting teacher's salary is. So if you're not able to get that compensation and you have a family that you have to take care of, you're not going to be able to serve on the school board because economically you can't afford to. So I work, I represent a minority community. So if I didn't have another source of income and they removed that salary, I wouldn't be able to offer myself to serve on the school board because I couldn't afford to. What the legislature is considering this year goes further than what it did a few years ago. A Senate proposal would reduce the pay to serve on a school board to zero. These are a lot of the games that we see with public policy that disenfranchises some communities and take the power away from the community. The community has a right to elect the person that they feel best represent them in their interests, and it shouldn't be based on economic status. If the legislature passes either measure, enacting term limits or eliminating salaries for school board members, Florida voters would get the final say. The questions would appear on the 2022 general election ballot. 60% of voters would have to vote yes for the measures to be approved and put into the state constitution. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Jessica Bakeman. And I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.